and welcome to Cream of Caroline, the sauciest casserole lifestyle podcast in America. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. This is episode five, What is Chinese Casserole? You just might find out today. We have Lucas Senna in the house. He's the chef of Junzi Kitchen, and he recently returned from a three-week trip to China. We're going to talk about why this is the best time in history to eat Chinese cuisine in America, the universal appeal of cream of mushroom soup, and the future of Chinese food. Sommelier Miguel de Leon from Pinch Chinese sent over some rad wine pairings. Thanks, Miguel. And Lisa Elbert and Micah Fredman will join Lucas and me for chopstick veal and rice. It's going to be creamy. What's in the oven? Not going to lie, I was skeptical about this week's recipe for chopstick veal and rice found on page 13 of the 1961 Better Homes and Gardens Casserole Cookbook or on Instagram at Cream of Caroline. But it was one of the few, at least vaguely Chinese themes recipe in the book, so we rolled with it. Here we go. Take some thin strips of veal, slice into two inch by half inch strips. That could be pork as well. Season with salt and pepper and brown in a hot pan with some fat. I always have bacon fat in my refrigerator, so that's what I used. Remove it from the heat and combine in a bowl with chopped onion, celery, bell pepper, and pimentos, one half cup raw rice, one can cream of mushroom soup, one cup milk, season with two tablespoons soy sauce. Transfer that to a two to three quart casserole dish, cover, and bake in a 350 degree oven for 75 minutes. At about the hour mark, I took a peek and it looked like an absolute soupy mess, but I put my faith in the recipe developers from Better Homes and Gardens, gave it a few more minutes, and the rice really absorbed the moisture, and it came together. The last five minutes of cooking, I topped it, uncovered it, and topped it with crispy chow mein noodles just to warm through. And it was pretty damn delicious. All my guests enjoyed it. Chopstick veal and rice, that's what's in the oven. Casseroles in the news. Pioneer woman Reed Drummond recently revealed a taste of home her all-time favorite food. The blogger, Food Network host, and magazine publisher has a soft spot for chicken spaghetti casserole, just jazzed up with onion, bell pepper, tomato, and cheddar. And more celebrity news, Oprah Winfrey and Kraft Foods just launched a line of healthy one-skillet pastas dubbed, oh, that's good. Winfrey says, I love all things thrown together in a skillet. When I grow up, tuna casserole was one of my favorite things in the world because you get all that stuff mixed together. You get a dinner, and you get a dinner, and you get a dinner. Finally, the 2019 Extreme Eating List has just been released by the Center for Science and Public Interest. Menu items made the list if they have an entire day's worth of saturated fat, salt, or sugar, and they contain 1,500 to 2,300 calories. A few offenders, cheesecake factories, cinnamon roll pancakes, three of which have 2,040 calories, Chili's The Boss Burger with 47 grams of saturated fat and 3,900 milligrams of sodium, and you know there's a casserole in there, Cracker Barrel's Country Boy Breakfast with country ham, two pork chops, sirloin steak, and hash brown casserole. It also contains 4,730 milligrams of sodium. That's double your daily intake and your casseroles in the news.
All right, guests, today we have with us on the cream, Lucas Sen, who is the chef of Gen Z in New York City and New Haven. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Uh, Gen Z is a fast casual restaurant group uh, that makes and serves northern Chinese food. Yes? That's about it, yeah. That's it. That's just about it. That's how, that's how we've decided to start doing this thing. Okay. We'll dig in. I suppose so. So you grew up in Hong Kong, yes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you had great cooks in your family. Your grandmother was a cook. Your mm -hmm. dad was an amazing home cook. The best chef I've ever known. What, what were meals like for you and your family? A lot of them were pop up in the fridge, see what's good inside of the fridge from yesterday or the day before, throw it into a pot, broth. You'd find things like bamboo, fish balls, rice noodles, cilantro, cilantro stems, all sorts of things in the same pot. And that was a lot of our Sunday mornings. That's what my dad was really good at. But since we're here to talk about casseroles in no small part, the casserole that I've been thinking about is this clay pot rice, which sometimes is translated as a casserole. I understand okay. that there are like different definitions for um, casseroles that may exclude this particular dish. Because we don't have ovens, right, really, in China. So it's not really baked. But no, I actually didn't know that. They're, they're there, there are ovens for, like, Western bakeries, but, like, China, China doesn't use, really, ovens. Everything is wok-based or steamed. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, this clay pot rice is a clay pot with rice inside of it. Um, the difficulty and the wonder of it is that if you cook it correctly, then as the fire pushes the heat into the rice through the clay pot, because the clay pot is semi-porous, mm -hmm. you perfume the rice with the most gentle clay, earthy flavor. The equal distribution of the heat on the bottom of this clay pot means that you can get a very crispy side um, and, and an even browning and crispiness. So sokarat. Sometimes called tadiki. Yeah, sokarat is the same thing. Okay. Um, we call it uh, fanjiu in Hong Kong. And if you can maneuver the pot correctly to do it, you don't have to open the pot at all. At all. So all of the aromatics within the grains of the rice stay inside. And sometimes you might throw a Chinese sausage in there or something. But that's just about it. So that's it's super simple. rice and then mate and then In the clay pot. In the proper clay pot with the proper technique. That sounds pretty difficult. Clay pot though. rice, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the go-to. It's a standard Hong Kong-style home style dish. It's the first dish I ever learned how to cook. And I love this dish so much that when I opened my first restaurant in Hong Kong when I was 16, I called it Bowtie, which means clay pot kid. And I obviously had once referred to myself as the clay pot kid, as you do. As you do when you're 16 years old. Yeah, and in lieu of a rapper have... name, that's the name you have, <laughs> clay pot kid. Um, and we also were talking about before we started recording that you actually ate cream of mushroom soup in yeah. Hong Kong? Yeah. I in mean, what, canned soup context? is really important. Canned products are really important because you think of them as vestiges of like a colonial past, right? I think Hong Kong does a really, really good thing of um, truly uh, absorbing the... Hong Kong was a British colony. And Hong Kong did a very good job of absorbing British influence into the cuisine and sort of making it into its own. So you might imagine something like pasta, straightforward pasta. All the rich people, all the rich British European people in Hong Kong uh, would have been eating pasta, but Hong Kong people who strive towards that sort of aristocracy would have made their own version of pasta. And they would use things like ketchup and 
canned cream of mushroom soup to finish as the sauce. Even though noodles are like Chinese. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or sometimes, yeah, you start with noodles and then you start with like, you know, uh, uh, macaroni and, and fusilli and these sort of like dried products that you find. I grew up with it as a very solid Hong Kong thing. But if you think about sort of like watery pasta, which is like soupy pasta, mm -hmm. that's entirely sort of a Hong Kong invention during uh, the British colony um, or the British colonization of Hong Kong. So it so it's <laughs> canned cream and mushroom is super super dear to my heart, and I'm very it's glad great to, hear to that. know that it's a huge part of the casserole <laughs> culture as well. <laughs> yeah. So and we're also going to do some we're going to have some wine pairings tonight um, from Miguel wow. de Leon, uh, who's a sommelier at Pinch. He is Pinch Chinese, mm -hmm. um, and he grew up in the Philippines, and mm -hmm. also with just a shit ton of cream of mushrooms. Yeah, so it is a it's a colonial product that yeah, has and spread. I mean cream of corn, uh, uh, like cream chicken is a really important mm -hmm. soup base for our macaroni and soup. Uh, spam obviously is another canned product that is really near and dear to all variations of Asians' hearts. Um, but yeah, it's, I've actually had a really good time trying to explore how these products that we have taken for granted in Hong Kong, like Spam and canned, and canned mushroom soup and things like this, function in American households in places like the Midwest. I spent a decent amount of time in Michigan, and I think to myself, every time for Thanksgiving we have uh, green, green bean, bean. Yeah. and <laughs> like the first time I saw this with like the French's, what is it called? The crispy onion on mm -hmm. top with the canned cream. Oh my god, it's so cool to see how different people are applying it differently. I've never seen cream, uh, cream of mushroom undiluted with water. Okay. As is, in full concentration. That's so hardcore and, you know, interesting to learn about. Well, anyway. tonight it's diluted with milk. Okay. Uh, and we're adding <laughs> rice. Here we go. Veal, soy sauce, onions, peppers. There's like and celery so yeah. much. Uh, but And I didn't saute them, which is going against my gut. Sure. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I have no expertise in this field. This is all you. Okay. Well, it's like, so my, my first experience, and obviously Chinese cuisine is so vast, um, with a Chinese casserole, or what mm -hmm, someone defined mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. a Chinese casserole, mm -hmm, was in mm -hmm. Chinatown, and I got a giant pot of soup with tofu skins. Oh, yeah. And like, and fish, I yes. think. Yes, yeah, yeah, deep fried, usually uh, ba uh, bass or tilapia. It was often. really funky. Yeah. It was crazy. And uh, oyster sauce is the base. So that the vessel that you got that casserole in with tofu uh, is the same clay pot that we serve rice in. And there's this cool thing that a lot of like casserole themed or casserole forward Chinese restaurants do is because you can retain so much heat in the in the casserole in the clay pot that you would cook things to about 80% or 90% doneness and put the lid on and as the waiter bust this casserole to people's tables it would finish cooking so you could perfect. open it and it would sizzle and all these things that's a proper way to do it okay yeah um, but beyond the clay pot rice, there were no other casseroles at your first restaurant, none at your no, restaurant. No, it was just no. this clay pot rice, yeah. Just a special yeah. rice. Yeah. I loved how simple it was. It was nothing but just rice and water and moving the pot at this right time and patience and all these things. Which has nothing to do with American casserole culture. Which has nothing to do yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's a really... I mean, French casserole, like... Uh, you know, requires technique, but Americans just dump, stir, uh -huh. throw it in the oven. But there is a huge amount of engineering... That goes in advance. Yeah, that goes in advance by the person who wrote the recipe. 
Right. It's very fast casual if you think about it that way. Yes, which is perfect. <laughs> nice segue. Uh, so, Gen Z. Yeah. Um, let's let's introduce listeners mm-hmm. to the concept, how it started, um, and your food in general. Uh-huh. So, at uh, Gen Z Kitchen, uh, we make Chinese fast casual food. That's our starting point. Our greater goal is to try to introduce new flavors and new ideas to the common everyday American vocabulary um, through Chinese food. Um, I mean, most of us know Chinese food and most of us love Chinese food, but there's a pretty singular understanding of what Chinese food can be and should be. And we're just trying to open restaurants that adds to that to show people that there's a huge diversity and a huge amount of culture in Chinese food. So we started opening fast casual restaurants because that's how you make food that's accessible um, and can fit into people's lifestyles. And that was really important to us in the beginning. Um, A lot of people might have started with a fine dining restaurant to say the absolute most about Chinese food. But we decided to go kind of the other way around and start with something that's a little bit more, you know, democratic and base. So um, we've been doing it for four years now and it's been a good time. and honestly, now is the best, best time to cook Chinese food in New York um, than ever before. This is the best time to Why? make Chinese Why food. Why is that? Because uh, it's a combination of uh, new immigration patterns. And uh, so the, the new immigration patterns are Chinese immigrants who are coming here to the U.S., who now are coming for higher education. They're graphic designers, they're architects, they're lawyers, and all these things. They come with narratives, they come with specific parts or specific stories from specific parts of China. And when they decide to open restaurants for whatever reason, they're doing it with a lot of intention. And they're doing it to tell a story and there's a cultural mission behind it. That's different from the Chinese immigrants who were opening Chinese restaurants in the U.S. for the last 100 150 years or so, which is to open Chinese restaurants out of necessity because that was the industry you would go into coming here to the U.S. So that privilege that we have now um, of education and otherwise um, means that a lot of creative Chinese food is happening here. I mean, my favorite chefs are all people like this, like Eric at 886, mm-hmm. uh, Amelie at Mala Project, Hulu, Hunan Slurp, all, China Blue, China, Cafe China, all of these places are opened by rest- restaurateurs and chefs who really have a story to tell. And New York City is the best place to do it because New York City, New Yorkers are open to this sort of thing. They're a little bit uh, sort of they're less risk averse, so to speak. Um, and they've also gotten past the point that, you know, um, Chinese food now is allowed to be regional. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of people that did that um, for us. First, Cecilia Chang, Panda Express, P.F. Chang's, places like this. and. More recently, Xi'an Famous Foods kind of threw open the door and said, hey, right. Chinese food can be regional. And everyone's like, oh, wow, like there can be these crazy flavors and it's almost got nothing to do with what I thought Chinese food was. And we're sort of following in Jason and Xi'an's footsteps to keep opening the door to show people, look at this, look at this, look at this. This is interesting. This is cool. This is different. And Xi'an was also a fast casual concept yeah. that has been incredibly su- successful in New York City. Mm. Um and so what are you adding at Gen Z to the landscape? What is, what is your voice? <laughs> well, the, I'm a big fan of thinking about home-style cooking. I'm a big fan of thinking about sort of regular, everyday food. Um, not every single meal, to me, needs to be the most spectacular and exotic uh, 
experience. I think it's important to think about ethnic food that fits into people's lifestyles. Um, a lot of the meals that I've had in the U.S. are most impactful for me are these meals that I have regularly, um, whether it's a salad at Sweetgreen or it's the breakfast that I have at the corner diner. Um, all of these are about are marked by sort of loyalty and going back regularly um, and having something just fit as a regular part of your life. And I think cooking for that is actually kind of surprising and sort of different, especially coming from, you know, a fine dining-ish, pop-up-ish type of background, which is all about reckless cooking and trying to get as many flavors, as, as much like talk and interest into something. Uh, fast casual cooking is almost the opposite, but it's in some ways doing a, uh, in service of a similar goal. Yeah, I was saying earlier, my husband William works a ton of late nights mm -hmm. and has really enjoyed your Bryant Park location because he just he wants something that's like warm, flavorful, yeah. uh, healthy, and he you know we get bored eating the same stuff all exactly. the time. But he so he keeps going back. Yeah, he keeps going back, and, <laughs> and there's enough back. variety there, and it needs to be it needs to be fine. Like a lot of people, <laughs> I think a lot about what type of reaction I'd like to get out of a lot of my uh, uh, repeat customers and guests. And instead of this image, some chefs have this image that when people eat their food, they'll be smiling and like, oh my God, this is changing my life and all these things. In my head, it's a little bit more like, huh, that's fine. Like, that's good enough. Not bad. Don't say it's better than good. Enough. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and, so, and I grew up in South Georgia with one Chinese restaurant uh -huh. um, and like, you know, I got a poo-poo platter that my mom was like the only yeah. thing I would eat every time. Yeah. I mean, obviously I've learned a lot since coming sure. to New York City, yeah. but uh, just something is like, to me, uh, the tomato egg yeah. noodles, the mm -hmm. fact that that's just like everyday home cooking in China yeah. and then add like a beautiful pork to that and it's recalls Southern barbecue. Yeah. It doesn't even feel Chinese to me it's anymore. It's actually so odd. Exactly. Um, and, and that's and that's a beautiful, well, it's a beautiful thing about tomato sauce. A lot of people come into the restaurant and have our tomato noodles and think to themselves, or tell me, wow, this really reminds me of my grandmother's cooking. And you look at them, you're like, what what type of grandma? And they're like, oh, yeah, Italian household, blah, blah, red sauce. Oh, makes a lot of sense. Or somebody was like, oh, my, my, my aunt or whoever was Persian, and, and this is, we would make this sauce like this, and they would have these aromatics just like this. And it's like, that's so wonderful that Chinese food can connect with people at this sort of like base, like basic way. Yeah, it was guttural. And, yeah. that, and that to me, whether, whether I'm eating, I have that experience a lot with, Peruvian food mm -hmm. and Indian food, obviously not with all of the dishes, uh, but that dish in particular for me made me think of home. And, and you know, tomatoes came from the New World yeah. and they made it to China. Like and three, four hundred years ago. Right, and now this is this essential northern Chinese, Chinese dish. Yeah. dish. Yeah, yeah, with the noodles and sesame sauce does a similar thing. Just like nuttiness is this flavor profile that's across all sorts of cultures. So, yeah, I, I think. That's sort of what what I'm aiming for with uh, Jones's for sure. And then tell me about Chef's Table. Um, so Chef's Table is this program that I started doing when Jones's first opened because I grew up doing pop-ups, um, which is defined by a certain type of reckless cooking that is summed to deep uh, narrative exploration. And so what Chef's Table does is we do five to seven courses about once a month um, for about a week. We'll look into a very specific topic uh, 
in which Chinese food interacts with some other culture or te technique or something. So we do something like Chinese X Indian, for example. Okay. If that was a the theme, then we might be working with an Indian chef, or uh, sometimes we work with uh, sort of uh, an Italian painter or something like this. And we would uh, look into what food we would be able to cook over the course of five to seven courses to tell the story of that interaction. Mm -hmm. Chinese Indian food was a really interesting one because everyone knows about Chinese Indian food or food that exists that is Indian Chinese. Um, you know, like Hakka noodles and uh, Gobi Manchurian and these sort of like almost Chinese American take on uh, chicken and vegetables sauced with some like spicier sauce. But we were interested in looking at how Chinese immigrants, early Chinese immigrants, ended up in India, in Calcutta specifically, and the type of Chinese people that landed there. And we kind of said to ourselves, what is the hypothesis here? Like, what would the food look like if Hakka Chinese arrived in West Bengal? And what would the food actually look like if they had to fuse it right then and there, you know, 300 years ago? So that's the type of, you know, silly, totally um, indulgent cooking that we uh, do. And we invite people to come and sit down and experience this and do this experiment with us. Um, and we do it every month. So the theme always changes. Um, we've done Chinese Dominican. We've done the Silk Road. Uh, I'm really hoping to recreate the Nixon China dinner from the 80s. Okay. It'd be so fun. Because um, we have the menu of what Nixon had the first and time Nixon went to China. seems like a great president right now. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, sure, sort of. Some people, I was, I've been talking about this topic, this Nixon China dinner, and people have asked me to use it to comment on the geopolitical, or rather, the gastro diplomatic situation um, of U.S. China, and I don't think I'm t entirely qualified to make those type of statements. Okay, but it's always interesting to think about how Peking duck probably made U.S.-China relations better at the end of the Cold War. I, I mean, I, I would sign up for Peking Kissinger duck. said that. Kissinger said, uh, sent a memo out uh, to China and said, if we have Peking duck, this conversation will be a lot easier. So the second night that Nixon was there, they had a full Peking duck dinner. Duck for every course. It's true. And it was the thumbs up. I, I, I would hope so. The, the war's over. That war was over. That so. war. Now, now, we just, yeah. now we have a fresh <laughs> trade war on our hands. And, and, you know, I think that that is uh, your work there in that dialogue with Chinese immigration is obviously going to get so much more interesting with the infrastructure mm -hmm. uh, projects going on in Africa. Mm -hmm. There's a whole new kind of diaspora. Yeah. Every time I think I know something about Latin American cooking, mm -hmm. whether it's in Mexico, um, I've known about, you know, Peruvian Chinese for a long time, but there are pockets yeah. of Chinese immigration. Everywhere. Everywhere. Every, there are Chinese people everywhere, number one. But number two, Chinese people <laughs> always open restaurants. They just like always open restaurants wherever they are. And if you're opening a restaurant in a place that's not China, inevitably that cuisine is going to have to fuse with the local flavors, so to speak. And so every time there's a Chinese person, there's a Chinese restaurant. Every time there's a Chinese restaurant, there's a mini Chinatown at least. And so I am on this personal project to kind of explore all of the Chinatown to see how you know flavors have come in and out of the cuisine and the new cuisines that that sort of immigration pattern has produced. Yeah, it's Sometimes, cool. honestly, though, sometimes they're a little bit more disappointing than you'd want them to. Okay. Depending on how That's long fair. the people have been there, you know. Like Chinese-Italian food, for example, doesn't really exist. Really? Yeah. It's very American Chinese. And when I think about this, a good friend of mine, his name is Philip. He's the founder of P.F. Chang's. He is one of the 
one of the first people to bring standardized Chinese food to the rest of the world. We, we don't think of about that often enough. P.F. Chang's we think of as this maybe high-end-ish chain restaurant, outback-ish TGIF. Mm-hmm. That's my level, impression. Exactly, uh, in, in the United States. And yeah, they definitely did do a lot to expand what Chinese food is supposed to be at sort of a fine dining-ish level in, within the United States. But internationally, they have something like 100 locations, like 30, uh, 30 um, different countries. And so when they opened a restaurant in a place like Turkey, they're really doing a lot to introduce a type of standardized Chinese food via the U.S. into Turkey. And that's really interesting to think about. And you can only imagine that a lot of Chinese food is really more influenced by American Chinese food than Chinese Chinese food because of these types of Right, the brands and the dollars behind it and the financing deals that are available because P.F. Chang's will make make money, I assume. They do, they really do. Mad respect for them, seriously. And well, and you just got back from China. Just got back from China a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago. The itinerary sounds insane. We went to 13, 13 days we went to nine cities uh, to see a lot of what China is up to. We were saying earlier that whenever we think about cultural cuisines like Chinese cuisine, we like to think about the past. We like to think about the history and the culture behind it. But we don't often think about where it's going. And this time, I was running around China, checking out all these interesting concepts and things, and I'm convinced that the best scaled chain restaurants, so to speak, are all in China. Uh, there was a place that makes Yunnan cuisine. Um, Yunnan cuisine is, rel- is well-loved, um, but it's having its moment right now. Um, and this place has like about 100, 150 locations or something, and they're sourcing fair trade from Yunnan. They're bringing in mushrooms that taste like truffles, like purple mushrooms that taste like truffles. They're bringing in uh, uh, pork that's specifically butchered at the third vertebrae for the specific dish. And, and you eat this food and you think to yourself, this could be X number of Michelin stars, whatever, in New York City. And then you remember there are 140 other locations just like this who are serving the food that's just as good as the food I'm having right now. How do they do this? And I'm sitting over here eating this. And they're all over the food. they're all over the country. All over the country. And they're like, So how's it going with you guys at Jun's this little Chinese fast <laughs> casual restaurant? Like, oh, you know, we've been working hard, we've been in four restaurants in four years and then you know, you get made fun of because China scale is China scale. But it's always interesting and there's a lot to learn about uh, Chinese the Chinese food industry as it develops. Um, even in fields of uh, sustainability and um, and automation, for example, like all of these things, there's a lot of innovation there, and I would love to help bring some of that um, advancement over here to the U.S. It's definitely not a part of the conversation we're having about yeah. Chinese food and America. <laughs> I mean, yeah. automation sounds like okay, that makes sense. What yeah, I mean, what's sense. happening in sustainability? That's cool. Well, a lot of the sustainability um, conversation starts in Europe and in places like California, and now that the ideas have made its way electronically, digitally, or otherwise into China. People in China are putting it into practice. There's a little lake that I'm hoping to visit at the end of the year. And on this lake is a government-sanctioned and government-paid-for series of boats. Each of these boats is basically a Noma fermentation lab, or rather a, a Noma development lab, wow. where they just entertain and try to figure out um, ideas uh, that would help build a more sustainable food system on these boats in this lake, government paid for. 
every single boat, there are maybe like 10 or 12 of them, is manned by a chef or a philosopher or somebody who is... Uh, <laughs> I just like my eye just grew at us. I know. Or a philosopher. Yeah, I was hanging out for a long time with, these, with people who are Buddhists who um, are doing deep dives into the history and the thinking of Chinese cuisine to figure out how we can better, how we can fix the food system in China. Um, you know, issues of over-relying on standardized um, sauces or um, over-reliance on MSG and things like this that um, we've forgotten our true sort of like, in some ways, our like Buddhist roots and our connection to the land. I mean, the, his- the history of the cuisine is like, it's, it's, it feels endless, yeah. right? It and, is, and like... The other day, we found a 4,000-year-old noodle. F- we, we were just hanging out Pe- not not we, but people like, were ha- <laughs> people were hanging out in China, some part of Western China, and they look at this urn. They say maybe we should open it. They open the urn, and inside is a four thousand year old noodle, which is to say that we have been making noodles for four thousand years. Can you imagine all the other things we've been working on since then? Like that's at least how long Chinese cuisine has been around, and there's so much depth to it we need to do more to dig deeper and learn more about it because it's so much more than you know lo mein and dumplings and orange and, chicken and, and, and ideas from 1961 yeah. of what I mean that's exciting too <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about a Chow larger mein is a noodle that's a it's a fried noodle are you, you, are, you, are, you, are you asking that as yeah, a question? Yeah, I'm asking this as a question because I don't know what chow mein is. So chow mein and lo mein are really the same thing. I was read. I, I read about it. No, but chow, in, in wiki definitions, it yeah. says that chow is the fried one. Chow is, chow means stir fry. Okay. Uh, in America, we just fry fry. Yeah, fry fry. <laughs> and Chris, we go to salad and things, right? Right. Uh, lo mein is to mix something. So lo mein can refer to, usually it's a cold noodle or it's a dry noodle that you put a sauce on top of or something. Okay. I've been trying to spend a lot of time at the Chinese American institutions here in Manhattan, Chinatown. Wohup is one of my favorite restaurants okay. of all time. I was going to ask, what, so what are really, those institutions? Really digging into Wohup, um, uh, Hup Wol, uh, Hup Sheng, all these places in Chinatown that have been cooking Chinese American food. And it's so funny, I go into these restaurants and... Uh, if I go alone, sometimes they don't won't let me in. Because, uh, <laughs> well, I'll dial back. Sometimes I go to these restaurants, and they ask, "Are you sure about this? You sure you want to sit down?" She's like, and they'll say things like, "Look around. There are no Chinese people here." Have you, have you been here before? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've been here before. Like, I love the food. Don't worry about it. And they're like, are, are you sure you really want to eat this food? This is, this is like for Americans. And I was like, no, 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 no. I love this. I'm not even joking. And, and so I've started so to this bring... This is a conversation. This is like a side conversation This is like right at the door. Yeah, in Cantonese. And then oh I'll... <laughs> and then now, nowadays, I've started to bring my girlfriend, who is white, and to say, oh, she's my ticket into coming into the restaurant. <laughs> please let me in. And we would always order these things that are on the menu that I'd never heard of. Um, and then now we've gotten to the stage where we've gotten comfortable enough with the guys at Wohup that we can uh, order off the menu and okay, like serving my... the things like back in the day like, like the stuff that you don't even put out here anymore and it's the only they're one of the few restaurants well you've heard of these Chinese American restaurants where you can get an American menu an English menu and a Chinese menu right? right and the Chinese menu has all these things that's not on the American menu Wohup is the exact opposite if you ask for the Chinese menu it's a reduced version of the Chinese American menu there are a bunch of things on the Chinese menu that aren't in the English menu. 
And I was like, whoa, this is a total reversal. <laughs> and people don't give this place enough credit because this is what America did then for, to Chinese food. And it's so good and it's so wonderful and it's so regional. Um, people like to, I mean, people like to bash Chinese American food as inauthentic, but that's totally untrue. Because Chinese American food is as authentic as it can be to the Chinese American story, right? There's no getting around it. It's just a regional type of Chinese food. And people like me who didn't grow up in that region should do our best to try to study and learn it because so much of it is delicious. But yeah, I just don't understand. Chow fun mm -hmm. is supposed to be rice noodle based only. Is that still true? These are things we need to figure out. I don't know. Talk all these years. I, I, like I feel like it's very a flexible narrative. When, I, no, because I feel like you can order whatever noodles you want. And they'll always come out a certain way. Yeah. I don't know. Looking forward to this what's on the, what's on the What's on the Wohop special menu? That's what so, I want to know. Like, um, we're talking about chow fun, right? So chow fun, there are two main types, main ways to make chow fun. One is wet and the other is dry. Okay. Okay. The dry type, sometimes called the brown sauce type, is made with soy sauce so that the noodle itself is stir-fried with the soy sauce. It absorbs the soy sauce flavor. Um, it's usually with beef and may sometimes ginger, but usually bean sprouts, something like this. The white sauce, the wet sauce, is a cornstarch-based sauce, mm -hmm. sometimes also known as lobster sauce, if it has crab inside of it. I'm still trying to figure it out. So uh, <laughs> you can get uh, noodles at Bohup, stir-fried first, dry style, with soy sauce. So it absorbs all this like wok flavor and this soy sauce charring, caramelized flavor. And then you can put a lobster, a white lobster sauce on top of it, kind of like a yin-yang, best of both, mm -hmm. both worlds type of situation. And this you can only get after you've been there for a while and you know how to order it. I still don't know how to order it properly in uh, uh, in English, mm -hmm. or rather, I don't know how to order it in Chinese because it's a, kind of an invented dish. So I kind of have to transliterate it from, into English for them to make the dish. So, so I'll say I need the dry styled chow fun with the wet, and add extra minced meat and less ginger and all these things, and try to translate it that way. I might need to go with you. Yeah, we have to go because I'm not doing a very good job explaining <laughs> of how this dish is put together. It's ridiculous. Their egg foo yang is so good. Um, usually you make egg foo yang and it's an omelet with like a like a brown sauce on top of it. Their egg foo yang is deep fried first. So it's a deep fried omelet, three layers, two or three layers of it with the filling of choice, chicken, crab, whatever it is. And then the brown sauce over the top. Like that's so innovative. It makes so much sense. You know how people uh, in Japanese restaurants serve tempura inside of the udon soup? Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the fried stuff can soak in more of the broth so you can taste it. That's the exact same thing for egg foo young. It is the same level of intricacy. Ugh, Chinese American food is amazing. And so four locations, three in New York right now, mm -hmm. one in New Haven. Um, we talked about working on the financial district. What What are your goals for the restaurant? What do you, what do you want for... For the group hmm. I, right now to make it to tomorrow sometimes it feels like <laughs> but seriously um i i would like for us to work uh, harder even harder than we are to figuring to figure out how to translate uh, chinese cooking and chinese food thought um first and foremost to the people that we work with which are 
our suppliers, obviously, but also our crew members and the people who cook the food every single day. I'm who, not who are not necessarily food. Chinese. And they definitely didn't grow up with this stuff. And right. the idea is, if I can't translate it for them, if we can't figure out how to get them as excited as we are about Chinese cooking, how is that possibly going to end up with the consumer, with the customer? I think uh, it's really interesting, especially in a time like this, when we're opening restaurants that are scaling up quickly to not only keep your employees and your people in mind, but make them your priority. Mm -hmm. um, it would be really interesting to you know, start working on something like, or to start working on education programs to build a little bit of Chinese food thought and Chinese culinary technique into sort of culinary education. Um, the CIA, for example, Culinary Institute of America, famously has a one to two week program for most graduates in all of Asian cooking. And with the increase of <laughs> Chinese students there, fairly insane. They'll sit in there and they'll think to themselves, "There's one professor who teaches all of Asian cooking, and how are like there's so much more to learn. There's so much better. Like for a French cook, a French cook who learned a little bit more than two weeks of Chinese cuisine would benefit. Their food would be better. They would have right. a deeper understanding of and flavors and techniques and, all these and, and like techniques that they could absolutely use. My dream is always that one day, New York or otherwise, I'm going to walk into an Italian restaurant and they're going to be making pasta, and you're going to notice that they're flipping their pasta in woks instead of saute pans. Woks give just like and the they most make... magical flavor too mm. that you that cannot be replaced. Yeah, and at low heats, their uh, the shape allows for maximum tossing. So your pasta can, your pasta sauce can emulsify. It just makes so much sense. I don't know why we've been sticking to these saute pans. Like, like an Italian chef would definitely look at wok and think to themselves, that this is the best way to toss pasta. I should have a wok in my restaurant. It doesn't matter that it's a Chinese piece Vessel. of equipment. Yeah, but it would make the food better. And that's the type of like deep understanding and influence of Chinese food that I would hopefully like to see in the next five, 10, 15, 500 years. I mean, I feel like it's happened with Japanese cuisine. Everybody's mm -hmm. uh, cooking with binchotan and yeah. in and Japanese knives and uh, the Danabe pots. Exactly. Uh, Kyle Kanaten is yeah <laughs> advocated for those. Exactly. Uh, but no, you're right. There probably are. There's like this. I don't know what kind of barrier. Yeah, I mean, it requires a little bit of respect for the cuisine and also curiosity and trust that the cuisine and the tools that it provides is more to offer than we even thought in the first place. This clay pot, every day I just have been, I think about this clay pot because I named myself after it 16 years ago, but also <laughs> just trying to explore how do you best use this semi-porous uh, uh, device to coax more sort of like earthy or smoky flavors out of things. Recently I did a dinner on a farm and we made the clay pot rice on the coal. We've just started out on the stove and finished it on the coal mm -hmm. to see if the, the smoke could penetrate the, um, the clay pot to give it just the gentlest, toasty flavor. Sort of worked. Um, sort yeah, of. Sort of worked. <laughs> but this humble little casserole-looking thing that just keeps giving, and, 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 and that's the type of stuff that chefs really get excited about because um, it's like these things that you grew up with that you took advantage of and you took for granted are suddenly these wonderful um, you know, nodes of storytelling and culinary innovation. Which is how I feel about casseroles. Also, yeah. my mom is like giving you're me. On the right path. She was giving me hell about it last week. She was like, you're, "I can't believe you're using cream of mushroom soup. You yeah. uh, talk <laughs> shit about me for years." 
But I'm, but I'm back. Yeah, definitely <laughs> what it is. Um, oh, I think, I think that's, guests are I here. think that's Lisa at the door. That's actually perfect timing. Hold Amazing. on, Lisa, just one more second. Um, how, how can people find you online, Instagram, find the restaurant, find mm-hmm. more details? So the restaurant is called Junzi Kitchen, J-U-N-Z-I-K-I-T-C-H-E-N. Um, we're on Instagram, Twitter, all of that stuff. Um, my name is Lucas Sin, L-U-C-A-S dot S-I-N. I'm on Instagram too, even though I'm a little allergic to it. Do your best. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap up with uh, we're gonna finish cooking awesome. a few things. We're gonna actually allow Lisa to come in and we'll start pouring wine and, and eating. Very exciting. All right. Thank you so much again for thank coming you, by Karen. tonight. Before dinner, I want to make sure that everyone has some wine in their glasses. Thanks, Miguel De Leon, again for sending your bottle recommendations. Miguel's program at Pinch Chinese has a great selection of natural wines and pro tip. He's a big fan of Merlot with lots of Chinese dishes. Whether it's a Cantonese or spicy Szechuan, it works. Do not limit yourself to beer or Riesling, folks. Buy a bottle of Merlot the next time you order Chinese food. But tonight, with our American regional Chinese dish, he recommended a few things that I worked with the team at my local shop, Terry's, to pick up. First, bright bubbles, like a Cremant de Bourgogne or a higher acid pet gnat. We went with Cruz's Sparkling Val de Gay. Juicy, tart berry notes, uh, described by one reviewer as a porch pounder. I happen to have it in my closet already because we are members of Cruz's Wine Club. Love what they do. Next, in the funky skin contact category, we went with a natural wine made from nuns, hey sisters, in Lazio, Italy. It was, ready for this pronunciation, Monastero, Trapiste, Vitorchiano's Canobium, 2017, with three grapes, Trebbiano, Malvasia, and Verdicchio. Lovely, light effervescence, some cidery, savory qualities as well. And last, a chilled Syrah. Uh, And because Miguel spent time working in California at Chez Panisse, I went with a California wine, the Arnaud Roberts Sonoma Coast Syrah, with dark fruit, a bit of white pepper, and black olive. And the winners... I was a fan of that porch-pounding cruise Val de Gay, especially at the beginning of the meal. And Lisa, what did you think? Great, and the Syrah is a... You like the Syrah? It's really beautiful. There you have it. Our two California wines were the winners tonight. The sparkling cruise Val de Gay and a chilled Syrah from Arnaud Roberts. And now, it's dinner time. Uh, share with me your <laughs> honest feedback. It might be too hot, but you might want your taste buds burned off. I don't know. That's possible. <laughs> so, Micah and Lisa, at least you like grew up with casseroles. I think it's good. Because you're Midwest. This is a very exotic experience for me. <laughs> um, Cream rice makes a lot of sense. This. It tastes some, it tastes very familiar, and I can't quite figure out why. It's the can of soup. Mm. I think that you can't really go wrong if you put a can of cream of mushroom soup in something. Mm-hmm. Unless I mean, unless the meat wasn't good, but the meat's great. Um, that's what's familiar about it for me. It tastes like a casserole I ate when I was growing up. I feel like it tastes like something I might have had in a lunchroom. Strong, strong, celery. 
characteristic, I would say. <laughs> That's Lucas's report. That's yeah. a, it's exotic That's with, a, with a strong celery characteristic. We do have different types of celery in, uh, in China. I mean, that makes sense, but like, what celery do you use for different? Um, so Chinese celery is a little bit more uh, herbaceous. It's a little lighter. It's okay. a little bit more um, like, uh, what's that called? Mm. What's that herb called? Lovage. Okay. Crispy noodles are working for me. Okay, great. Yeah. I might like crunch them a little more. Like for like a little, you know? Okay. So the nooks and crannies. If we're going to do this again. We might. I don't know that, I don't know that we are. I just want if you want to sit around and really dig into how uh, cream of mushroom is a really important part of Chinese culture, you really could. Uh, I was telling Caroline earlier that uh, it's all about uh, Hong Kong people using ingredients that the British colonizers left behind and making it their own. And cream of mushroom, cream chicken, really important. Wow. It's genuinely so in a lot of Hong Kong style Western cuisine. Interesting. That's really interesting. And veal too. Did you, was the veal marinated by any chance? No. If we were to do this in Hong Kong, which I can absolutely see this as a cream sauce. So in Hong Kong you would do a, you'd have like the veal chop, you'd bread it and cornstarch and maybe put a little baking soda into it to help it denature a little mm -hmm. bit get it super flat, you would deep fry it like a cutlet, put it on top of a bed of fried rice, maybe a little bit of celery, but cream of mushroom as a sauce, a little bit of cheese into the oven. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> That's how we would do it. Okay, I think we have enough, I think we have enough impressions. And this is growing on me though. It really is. I like, I was yeah, really, I like, like more. When, I, yeah. when I had it and at first out of the oven, I was really horrified, but mm, it came together. Yes, it did. Who knew that cream of mushroom soup is the binder between my casserole upbringing, 1961 casserole culture, and the food that Lucas grew up with in Hong Kong. Maybe it's even time for me to bury my canned soup shame. Shh. Or just bury my face in chopstick veal and rice. It doesn't matter. Whether you're loud and proud with your can opener cuisine, or you have to make that soup from scratch with organic ingredients and farmer's market ingredients, it's your thing. Just keep it creamy.